Judges chapter 4. I want to look back at Judges chapter 4 this morning, picking up in verse 17. Judges 4, 17. Now Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Yale, the wife of Heber the Kenite. For there was peace between Yabin the king of Hatzor and the house of Heber the Kenite. Yale went out to meet Sisera and said to him, turn aside my master, turn aside to me, do not be afraid. And he turned aside to her into the tent and she covered him with a rug or a blanket. He said to her, please give me a little water to drink for I am thirsty. So she opened a bottle of milk and gave him a drink. And then she covered him. He said to her, stand in the doorway of the tent. It shall be if anyone comes and inquires of you and says, is anyone here that you shall say no? But Yale, Heber's wife, took a tent peg and seized a hammer in her hand and went secretly to him and drove the peg into his temple and it went through into the ground for he was sound asleep and exhausted. So he died. Father, another story in the book of Judges that is shocking and disturbing, but I believe not without purpose. So would you teach us from this today, Lord, and give us insight and revelation and understanding so that we can be sanctified in your word and in the truth. Lord Jesus, you said sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth, so we pray for this. And Lord, I pray that this message also would reach to salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, keep your finger there and turn over to the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 33. It's right about in the middle of your Bibles, Ezekiel 33. Picking up in verse 10. The Lord is speaking to Ezekiel. He's speaking of, if you see a, a heading of this chapter, it says the watchman's duty, and God is calling to Ezekiel to be a watchman for his people Israel. But he says, now as for you, son of man, say to the house of Israel, thus you have spoken, saying, surely our transgressions and our sins are, are upon us, and we are rotting away in them. How then can we survive? Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die, O house of Israel? And you, son of man, say to your fellow citizens, the righteousness of a righteous man will not deliver him in the day of his transgression. And as for the wickedness of the wicked, he will not stumble because of it in the day when he turns from his wickedness. Whereas a righteous man will not be able to live by his righteousness on the day when he commits sin. When I say to the righteous, he will surely live, and he so trusts his righteousness that he commits iniquity, none of his righteous deeds will be remembered, but in that same iniquity of his which he has committed, he will die. But when I say to the wicked, you will surely die, and he turns from his sin and practices justice and righteousness, 
If a wicked man restores a pledge, pays back what he has taken by robbery, walks by the statutes which ensure life without committing iniquity, he shall surely live, he shall not die. None of his sins that he has committed will be remembered against him. He has practiced justice and righteousness, he shall surely live. Yet your fellow citizens say, the way of the Lord is not right. Ever hear that today, by the way? The way of the Lord is not right. Maybe someone wouldn't say that overtly, but they say it by, oh, the Bible is archaic. Oh, that word can't, can't apply today. The word of the Lord is not right. He says, your citizens say this when it is their own way that is not right. When the righteous turns from his righteousness and commits iniquity, then he shall die in it. But when the wicked turns from his wickedness and practices justice and righteousness, he will live by them. And yet you say, the way of the Lord is not right. O house of Israel, I will judge each of you according to his ways. I need to throttle something back a little bit this morning. In moving through Judges, it's possible that I may have come off sounding like I delight in all the violence here. Possible. Let me clarify something to you all. I am as shocked and repulsed by it as anyone. And I don't take delight in these things. I, I, when I get shocked, I turn to humor. <laughs> when things are hard to to take or are unpalatable for me, I make jokes about it. It's what I do. It's what I do in my own personal private life. It drives my kids nuts. It's my way of trying to make more palatable that which is very difficult to swallow, to make more understandable and acceptable um, that which is, is hard or tough or even in many cases brutal as the story before us. I'm not a fan of R-rated or TVMA movies. In fact, if I see the TVMA or the R, I, I skip right by it because I know there's gonna be something in it. I know there's gonna be plenty that's offensive for me and I don't wanna see that. Ask my family. I will take It's a Wonderful Life over American Horror Story any day. You know, George Bailey and Bob Wallace over Michael Myers and Freddy Krueger. That's, that's my style. The graphic depictions that are in the book of Judges are illustrative of the vileness and the brutality of both sin and sinful humanity. The Bible has these things contained within, not to hide the truth, but to shed light on the truth and our desperate need for Jesus. Yet these stories are also examples. They can offer great application for us in terms of battling sin and even destroying sin in our lives. Still, I'm gonna try and be more sensitive because, and I've been a little called out for it and I think that's absolutely fair. No one likes to be called out for anything, right? But if we will pause and consider why, and I've thought about this over this week and thought, you know, I think that's legit. I think that's legit. For all the violence and deserved or undeserved bloodshed in this book, and there's both. There's bloodshed that is absolutely just, and there is bloodshed that is tragic and undeserved, and you'll see the difference as we go through Judges. But as we study it, the reality is that God takes no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, which is why we read from Ezekiel. Death 
itself is abhorrent to God because it is the end game of deadly sin and the curse. And God takes no pleasure in that. Ezekiel 18, verse 32, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord God. Therefore, repent and live. So, forgive me if I've come across delighted or worse, if I have in any way misrepresented the divine intentions of the Lord or his, his eternal heartache over lost sinners. Death is no game. Sin is not a joke. Now in the end, praise God, Revelation 20, 14 says, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. So even death itself is gonna be done away with. But this morning, we're gonna return to Yale in the story and the song of Deborah and Barak because there's some vital instruction here, not because of the brutality of the tent peg through the skull, and that is, it is shocking. And yet, Yale is, is held up as the heroine in this particular story, even for the brutality of the moment. But let's back up a little bit. How do we get to Sisera in the tent of Yale rather than in the Harvard Yard? I think that's what we all wanna know, right? If you weren't here midweek, or if you were watching online, we had a blip. We had about a 10 to 15 minute section of teaching that was lost in the stream of YouTube. I don't even know where it's, it's out there floating somewhere. Someone's gonna pick it up someday, I don't know. But I wanna back up a little bit and, and take you through a few of the things that perhaps you missed if you weren't here on Wednesday night. Besides, it'll give us a good running start to the story of Sisera and Yale. So if you look back at verse eight, it says, Barak said to her, this is Deborah and Barak, and we talked about Wednesday night, is entirely likely that Deborah, the prophetess and judge of Israel, was married to Barak. She's called wife of Lapidot. Lapidot means lightning, and Barak's name also means lightning. So there are several uh, hints at this that perhaps the two actually were married, and if you watch them interact through the chapter, it sheds light on some things. It's an interesting thought. But Deborah says, uh, is with Barak, and Barak says to her, if you will go with me, then I will go, but if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the honor shall not be yours on the journey that you are about to take for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hands of a woman. And then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. So we talked about in this the root of male-female conflicts, be they in marriage, in the church, in society today, men abdicating their God-given responsibilities and some women overstepping theirs and it all goes back to the curse, Genesis 3.16. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Do you see the conflict in that? God says your desire is gonna be for your husband, but, but it's not for like, oh, I just, I just love him so much. It's your desire is to be over your husband, but he will rule over you. Because of the curse, because of what took place in the garden and the overstepping of Eve at that point and the abdication of Adam at that point, God says, this is the way it's gonna be then. And so ever since, there has been conflict between men and women. Now, not everyone all the time is fighting to be top dog, but that 
conflict between the sexes is pandemic and it is problematic and there is only one answer to it and it's Galatians 3.28 where there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free man, male nor female, all are one in Christ Jesus. Jesus lifts the curse. Jesus lifts all curse. He lifts the curse of sin. And I said this on Wednesday night, I wanna repeat it right now, where Jesus is Lord, none of us need to be. Where Jesus is Lord, none of us need to be because the lordship of Jesus is the only thing that effectively puts down the human desire for control in our lives. Whether it's controlling self or controlling our situation or controlling others, his authority safeguards us from unruly rebellion into following after him. And when we follow him, we become free to be without strife. Now, it's tragic because even among followers of Jesus, you know this, there is strife, there's contention, there's division that happens. That's the human sin nature. That is not what a follower of Christ is called to. And yet, these contentions happen, but when we rest under his authority, when we accept that Jesus alone is God, he is Savior, he is Lord, and none of us are, life becomes much more simple and we become much more joyful and free to not strive. Now, in the lost stream, we also went on in Judges 4 to see how the Israelite battle against Sisera and the Canaanites was won. Reading through the chapter, the Lord, through his prophet Deborah, told Barak to lead his men up Mount Tabor. Mount Tabor is that, that northwesternmost camel hump mountain uh, if you're standing anywhere in the Valley of Megiddo and you're looking around, it is surrounded by a number of different mountains and Mount Tabor is the most obvious one because it literally looks like the hump of a camel and that's above the Valley of Megiddo. Verse 10 says, Barak called Zebulun and Naphtali together to Kadesh and that's in the Galilee and 10,000 men went up with him. Deborah also went up with him. They go up to the top or up onto the slopes of Mount Tabor. Verse 11, now Heber the Kenite had separated himself from the Kenites, from the sons of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses. Hobab is Jethro. It's another name for him. And had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zeanamim, which is near Kadesh. Verse 12, then they, that is Heber and family, then they told Sisera that Barak, the son of Avinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor. Now we pointed out back in Judges chapter one, verse 16, the descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up from the city of Palms, that is Jericho, with the sons of Judah to the wilderness of Judah, which is in the south of Arad, and there they went and lived with the people. So the Kenites, who had been with the Israelites since Mount Sinai, now are still there, and this says, Judges 1.16, that the Kenites went south with the people of Judah and joined in with them to live in the Negev, that is the, the desert region of Israel. Everybody except Heber and his family. This guy said, I don't wanna live in the desert, I wanna live in the mountains, I wanna live up in the, where the water flows and where it's, I wanna live in the northwest. So he moves up to the Galilee. And living up there, he begins to then, rather than being united and connected to Judah and the Israelites, he becomes united and connected to the Canaanites up in the north. 
And that's kind of the backdrop to this story, how, how this happened. Heber, by the way, his name means comrade, and I would say that's fitting. Because he aligns himself as a comrade to King Yabin at Hatzor, the Canaanite king, and Sisera, his commander, these guys knew each other. There was relationship. I don't know if they played cards on a Friday night. I'm not sure. But Heber now tips off Sisera about with this, this insider information. And Sisera takes that and marshals his massive troops and he heads down from the Galilee. He heads down to Mount Tabor, which is just barely south. In fact, he has about an eight to 10 mile journey south to where Mount Tabor was. And that's where this battle would take place. By the way, that's right where God wanted the Canaanite armies. Verse 13, Sisera called together all his chariots, 900 iron chariots, and all the people who were with him from Haroshet Hagoyim to the river Kishon. Deborah said to Barak, arise, for this is the day which the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Look, she says, behold, the Lord has gone out before you. So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him, and we're told then that the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his armies with the edge of the sword before Barak, and Sisera alighted from his chariot, and he fled away on foot. Which brings him ultimately to the tent of Yael. We pointed out that Deborah says, behold, behold, the Lord has given him to you. Behold, the Lord has gone out before you. And in the song of Deborah, in the next chapter, we discover that the sky is dripping rain. And what we think happened, and the reason why Sisera alighted from his chariot was his chariot was stuck in the mud. And in fact, there was a torrential downpour, which is what Deborah is talking about when she says, behold, the Lord has gone before you. Look, it's a downpour. The chariots are stuck. Go take these men. And so, of course, Barak and the armies come flooding down the side of Mount Tabor and they wipe them out. And the Bible says every last Canaanite was killed in that battle, with one exception, and that is, that is Sisera. So now he comes to the tent of Yale, the wife of Heber the Kenite, and again, the surprising heroine of the story, but the one about whom Deborah prophesied we tracked all this midweek and, and the rest of it then is online at that point. But this is the part of the story I wanna revisit. Picking up in verse 17. Now Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Yale, the wife of Heber the Kenite, for there was peace between Yabin, the king of Hatzor, and the house of Heber the Kenite. Okay, a few things to note. Number one, a deal struck. A deal struck, not a Peter struck, a deal struck, sorry. The first problem of sin, because as you've noticed, the title of our teaching is Killing Sin Dead. I had a different title that was a little more snappy, but this is more, I think, to the point. Killing Sin Dead. The first problem with sin, and this is number one, a deal struck when you think you can negotiate a treaty with sin. You can never bargain with evil. You can never negotiate. You can't make a deal with the devil. Diplomacy only works when both parties are trustworthy, which is the problem in the world today. Mediation is a futile deterrent to sin. Now, we have a mediation between God and fallen humanity, 
And it only works because of who God is. It does not work because of who we are. The, the, the covenants that God made with Israel are not intact because of who Israel is. It's what a lot of people misunderstand about, about the Jewish people. They're not God's chosen people because they're so much better or more righteous. They're his chosen people because he chose them. In the same way that you are chosen of God because he chose you, not the other way around. If you think you chose God, you need to revisit the scriptures. No one can come to me, Jesus said. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him to me. God makes the choice straight out the gate. He allows you to choose. He invites you to choose. But if you choose him, it's because he's chosen you. So he's always out ahead, and the choice is always the Lord's. And when it comes to mediation, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, there's one God, one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself up for all as a ransom, the testimony at the proper time. He is, Hebrews 9, 15, the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Hebrews 12, 24, Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. He's the mediator. And to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel, that is, his blood speaks mercy and grace. But try to give in to sin, try to negotiate with sin, try to mediate in your own life with sin, with an attitude of give and take, and that is a recipe for disaster. Verse 18, Yale went out to meet Sisera, and she said to him, turn aside, my master, turn aside to me, do not be afraid, and he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. Point number two, a door opened, and a duvet offered. A door opened and a duvet offered. Listen to me, Yale invited him in. And this is the next dangerous step with sin. It begins with a negotiation, a mediation. I can handle it, I can deal with it, I can be in this place, I can be surrounded by it, not a problem. We're all good, they're good, I'm good, we're good together. And that's where you kick the door open. Actually, that's where you strike a deal with, I can live this way. And then, then the door is opened. And Yale invites him in. Well, how do we do that? How do we invite sin in? Well, what are you watching on TikTok? What are you reading? Who are you listening to? Did I tell you about my son Chris and the Jehovah's Witnesses? No? Okay, then I gotta tell you this. So the other day, uh, Cheryl and I are out of the house. Chris and David and, and Corey are the, are the three who are at home. Knock at the door. Chris opens the door. It's a couple of Jehovah's Witnesses. They begin to talk to him. They give him some tracts. They give him some information. And uh, he takes it, you know, because he's 15. He's like, oh, okay, uh, thanks, thank you, okay. And we get home that afternoon, and Chris says, hey, Dad, some nice people stopped by. I said, oh, really? From the church? No. No, who, who were they, Chris? Well, they, they were some people, they were dressed kind of nice and they wanted to talk to me about, about God and the Bible and about the kingdom on earth and, and he said, it, it didn't sound right to me and I said, good. <laughs> and honestly, I was a little ticked. 
These people showing up and talking to my underage son without me there, without my permission, I was ticked. And I kind of held that tickedness with me for a few days. A few days went by, two weeks. In fact, Chris said, yeah, they said they'd come back by on Thanksgiving because they don't celebrate Thanksgiving. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> Tell you what, my gander was up. Maybe not my gander, my turkey. On Thanksgiving, I was waiting. They never came. A couple of days go by. I'm headed out to my car, leaving my house, and a car pulls up into the driveway that I don't recognize. Guy stops, gets out, nicely dressed, older man, carrying some pamphlets and information. And I said, can I help you? He said, yeah, I was just wondering, um, you know, I, I talked to a young man, uh, Chris, here a couple of weeks ago. I said, I said I'd, love, I'd come back. And he said, is he here? Um, can I talk to him? And I said, Chris is not available right now. I said it just like that. And he goes, oh. And I said, nor will he be available. I said, oh, and he turned around, got in his car and left. And he knew that his welcome was rescinded at this point. Now, some of you would say, oh, Rick, why didn't you talk to him? Why didn't you share the gospel? That wasn't the time to do it. A, that guy was on my turf coming after my son with lies and deception. And I wasn't gonna have any of it. If he had come to me, I might have just one-on-one -on -one talked to him a little bit. I doubt it would have gone very long. <laughs> Pulling out scripture and talking the truth. And, and I, I warn you, some of you are very well-versed in dealing with Mormons who come to your home, with Jehovah's Witnesses, with, with others who come with, with a cult background. And by the way, both are cults. You can argue that with me another time if you want, but we're talking about cults here. And they come with a twisted truth, a deception, a lie. And some of you are equipped for that. If you are, if you've studied it, if you know how to combat this, fine, then do so. Most of you don't. Most of us have not been versed in this. And I guarantee if they're coming to your door, they have been very well versed. They are trained to answer all of the lightweight, more superficial questions or curiosities that people would have. So I turned the guy away. I, I actually have scripture and verse for that. Second John chapter, or second John, it's just one chapter, verse 10. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house. And do not give him a greeting. For the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. Now, what I'm talking about here is opening the door to sin and deception offering covering even for sin and deception. And you would think, well, I wouldn't do that. We don't do that in the church. Yes, we do, way too easily because we don't think it's that big a deal. We even have our list of those sins that are a big deal that we would stay far away from and those that are a little deal that we open the door wide to with our streaming services and what's on our phones and our computers. We just say, I'll, I'll open the door to that. Not a big deal. I just won't watch everything, but I'll keep the door open. And I think we're getting a warning here. Some assume in reading this story that it was Yale's move uh, to, this, like this was a deep-dyed plot to kill Sisera. She planned the whole thing out with just a waiting for him. I remind you that the household of Heber are not Israelites. They are in league with the Canaanite benefactors. 
They lived with the Canaanites, around the Canaanites, surrounded by the Canaanites. And for Yale to plot something like this would be pretty out of character. I think she opened the door because she knew him and saw him in distress. Now, that's my opinion. We don't know when Yale began to plot the demise of this commander, but it appears from the story that her invitation is well-intentioned, if not naive. But obviously, something starts to unsettle her heart once he's in the tent. She starts waking up to the threat that she invited in. Verse 19 He said to her, please give me a little water to drink for I am thirsty. She opened a bottle of milk and gave him a drink and then she covered him. Number three, a drink for the insatiable. A drink for the insatiable. Again, a deal struck (laughs) and then a door opened, a duvet offered. A drink for the insatiable. Sin is a thirst that cannot be quenched. Now, some of these things are basic, we've been over, but it's part of the understanding here. I don't know how many ways we've said this, that sin is insatiable, it's greedy, it's voracious, it's ravenous, it's rapacious, it's gluttonous. That's sin. You can never feed it enough for it to be satisfied. You can never sin enough to say, okay, now I won't do that anymore. It's not true. Because the more you do it, the more your flesh is gonna want to do it. And that's the way sin works. However, this is the first time that we see Yale beginning to work against the danger in her house. That she's actually trying to, either she had this planned out, which you know some think that, or she's realizing the situation she's got herself in and she's trying to turn the table a little bit at this point. How do you know that? She gives him milk not water. In the Middle East, there is a popular savory yogurt drink, and it's probably something like what she gave him. It's called, in Turkey, they call it Iran, 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 A-Y-R-A-N. It's also called Du in some places, Dale, Da, Zinogala, or Tan. So if you're in the Middle East and you wanna go get a tan, it might not be what you think. It's similar to kefir. We talked about Wednesday night. It's served either chilled or warm, sometimes fermented, and it is loaded up with tryptophan. This stuff makes you sleepy. Tryptophan is an amino acid that releases uh, serotonin and melatonin in our bodies. And so she gives him this milk. He asks for water. She gives milk. Warm milk, perhaps? In an attempt to lull Sisera into a dull sleep. Milk and cookies for Santa Claus. By the way, bad idea if we want him to make it through the night. Just saying. But listen, listen to me here. If you're going to give sin anything, make it milk. Make it milk. First Peter chapter two, verse two, like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. This is like first steps teaching for a new Christian. The milk of the word, the pure milk of the word. Why? Because milk makes sin drowsy. The milk of the word makes sin 
drowsy so the work of sanctification then can begin to set in. Do you understand what I'm saying? A new believer, someone comes to Christ new in faith but is used to a sin lifestyle. And as they get into the word, the milk of the word, that is the, the, just taking whatever you can. People sometimes come and they say, I, I, I don't know how to take in all that you pour out in teaching. I'm like, that's fine, don't take it all in. Just get what you can. Look at it as a table that is spread with plenty of food on it and eat what you can eat. Take what you can take. And if it's only a glass of pure milk, then drink the milk. Why? Because the milk begins to subdue the sin nature. The milk begins to make sleepy that which would be active and alive otherwise. And so the pure milk of the word is one of the best things a new believer can take in. Understanding that the pure milk of the word is only good for so long because mature believers need the meat. That's where we need to start digging in and seeking to understand, which is what Paul said to the church at Corinth, a young church, having been fed on the milk of the word, he says, 1 Corinthians 3, verse one, I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ, I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not able to, you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now, you are not yet able Staying on milk is not a good way to combat sin for the mature believer. The brand new believer, start them off on milk. Read the Gospel of Mark, you know. Take them through something that, that maybe it's a little bit easier, a little bit more palatable. I wouldn't start a brand new baby Christian in Judges. Let's do John. You know, let's do Matthew, let's go to a gospel, let's understand something of the heart of God and the nature of Jesus Christ, and then you start to get into the meat. But we need the meat. For the mature believer to think that Bible light or watered-down teaching or even favorite verses are the way to go, that can leave you weak for the fight. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness for he is an infant, but solid food is for the mature who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Milk is a good start. It can make the sin drowsy, but the sin will again wake up if you are not fed something stronger to fight it. Verse 20, and he said to her, stand in the doorway of the tent and it shall be if anyone comes and inquires of you and says, is anyone here? That you shall say no. Number four, a deceptive cover. A deceptive cover. What does Cicero say? Exactly what sin says stand at the door and lie. Oh, there's no sin in here. Uh, no, 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 I'm fine, I'm good, everything's good. There's no sin. You know, if you do that for long enough, you'll start to believe it. Sisera, by the way, his name means battle array. Battle array, great name for a commander. Battle array. And he's cowering under a blanket, sipping on eggnog? How is that battle array? Don't believe it. It is a deceptive cover. You see, the deceptive cover is that while he is escaping his own demise from the battle, 
he is also very likely biding his time to go after Yale in the tent. This is sin. Oh, no, no, there's no sin in here. We cover sin, and yet sin is just waiting, just biding its time. The song of Deborah in chapter five suggests that Sisera's mother assumes that he has not returned from battle because he is enjoying the maiden spoils of war. You can assume what that is, but if you look at verse 30 of chapter five, are they not finding, are they not dividing the spoil? A maiden, two maidens for every warrior. What's she saying? Women to be raped. And no man would enter the tent of a woman in the Middle East of those days with her husband nowhere around unless he had some other ill intent. And Sisera's in there and he's covered up and he's saying, tell him, tell him no one's here, tell him no one's here. And Yale is in this place realizing, what have I done? What's going on here? Sisera may be sleeping, but it is apparent now that Yale suspects he has sexual assault on his mind. And that's exactly what sin does. We cover it, we say it's not a problem, I got this, no one needs to know what's really going on in my personal life. I'm so glad I can show up at church and no one knows the things that I've done and all we're doing is deceiving ourselves because we have deceptively covered the sin that is going to erupt in our own household and take us down. And this is the position that Yale is in. Hebrews 3.13 says, encourage one another day after day as long as it is still called today so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is a deceitful thing. Sin will lie to you, will deceive you, will make you think you got it covered and you don't. And we read in Luke 4.13, even with Jesus that the devil, when he had finished every temptation, left him until an opportune time. Now, that doesn't say that Jesus would ever be taken down. You know, he went down at the cross of his own volition, but that he would be, ever be taken down by sin, no. But, but the devil was waiting for a time when maybe he could try again. And that's sin. And it will try again and again in your life, in mine. It's always looking for an opportunity. But while Sisera snoozes now, Yale takes or wakes up to the threat in her own house and she acts decisively, verse 21. But Yale, Heber's wife, took a tent peg and seized a hammer in her hand. And she went secretly to him and drove the peg into his temple and it went through into the ground for he was sound asleep and exhausted so he died. And we talked about how being a, a tent-dwelling wife, and Bedouin, Bedouins even today, the wives are in charge of the tent. That is the setup and the breakdown of the tent. They know how to swing the hammer. Yale would have known how to handle that, how to drive tent pegs. This is not a foreign thing to her. And so doing this, she would have had the strength and the ability to make it happen. But listen, number five, we have a driving hammer. A driving hammer. Both here and in Deborah and Barak's song, uh, chapter five, verse 26, 
where it says she reached out her hand for the tent peg and her right hand for the workman's hammer. And here in verse 21, she seized a hammer. In both, we're talking about a hammer. My friends, it is the hammer that drives the peg and sin needs a hammer taken to it. And this is where we're getting really serious with this whole idea of sin. Oh, we cover sin, we lie for sin, sin deceives us, we think we can handle sin, all these things inviting sin in, all that we've looked at in this story. And you cannot treat sin that way. Sin needs a hammer taken to it. Jeremiah 23, 29, God says, is not my word like fire and like a hammer which shatters a rock? Well, Rick, we've already talked about the word, right, right? The milk thing and the meat thing. You know what? The word is described as milk and the word is described as meat and the word is even described as honey. And I'll share this just a side note with you all. The more you are in the word, the longer you are in the word, the sweeter it gets. And it really does become like honey. If you're, if you're you know, working through say judges and the gristle and the meat and the toughness of the word, you're, you're taking it in, but you're getting that protein, but you're like, I don't know, it's not that sweet to me. Stay with it, stay with it, dessert's coming. And it will be sweet. But the word is also described by God as a hammer that shatters rock. And I would take it as the hammer of conviction. And it looks something like this. You're sitting there listening to a teaching, maybe online. Maybe you're home this morning listening to a teaching or you're sitting there in a, in a Bible study or a church service and someone's reading something and there's something in the word of God and suddenly you find yourself annoyed, squirming a little bit, uncomfortable. Something's bugging you about what that guy is saying. You don't like it. You don't appreciate it. And how dare he and he doesn't even know what's going on in your life personally. I've told you so many times, I have no idea. The only way I know about anything going on in any of your lives as, as a fellowship is when you tell me. Otherwise, I don't know. And I've had people come up to me and say, how dare you question me like that? And I'm like, excuse me? Yeah, well, you said da-da-da-da-da. And I'm like, well, I didn't know then, but I know now. How dare you say this? And it's like, I'm, all I'm doing is, that's conviction. That is when the word becomes a hammer. It's not comfortable. It hurts. It's painful. It, 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 it's shocking. The word as a hammer. And my friends, we need the word to be a hammer. You have two options when you find yourself in Bible study and the word of God begins to annoy you. Two options, you can shoot the messenger or receive the message. You can harden an already stony heart or you can let the hammer shatter it. Let God's word do what God's word is supposed to do. My word is like a hammer which shatters rock, God says through Jeremiah to a people who are hard as stone. Hebrews chapter 12, verse five, you've forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges every son whom he receives. He scourges? That's brutal. That's tough. Yeah, and he'll do it to get the sin out of your life. 
to save you, to save me, to sanctify us. The hammer will fall. That means there's gonna be some uncomfortable hammering in our lives as believers. We don't just get to stay on milk and grow fat, dumb, and happy. No, we continue on in the meat and occasionally the hammer falls and it shatters the rock. And the shattering of rock is uncomfortable, is difficult, can be painful. There's gonna be some personal offense when the word is taught, when the word is being given. Usually that personal offense is not so much as in, in terms of interpretation. Here's exactly what it means. We're like, okay, I got that. But it's the application of the word that starts to make people squirm. But Paul said to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Part of the problem in the church today is pastors have stopped reproving. Pastors are no longer rebuking sin and sinful things and wrong thinking in our lives. Pastors have backed it down, you know, to make it, like I said at the beginning of the teaching, a little more palatable, a little more fun, a little more lighthearted. Now, you know me, I'm as lighthearted as the next person and I love a good joke, right, Deb? Thank you. Get an amen. But when we take lightly the word of God and we stop allowing it to be what it is in our lives and when we stop addressing things that are before us as sin or deception or lies, then the church gets weak. Then you get articles like the one I read this morning in NPR talking about how the church is really weak in America and a lot of Christians are just kind of going a different way because they just don't feel like it's working anymore. You know why it's not working? We've set the hammer aside. We're not willing to be hit. We're not willing to take the pummeling that will drive the sin out of our lives. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse three says, one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. We need exhorting and exhortation. That word, that is the, that's the encouraging but challenging, sometimes convicting prophecy of the word of God. It should make us uncomfortable sometimes. And if it doesn't, we're not reading it correctly or we're not taking the whole counsel of God. You think you can sail through this word unchanged. You are not sailing through this word. Now, the word was given to us to be taught and preached and received. But it becomes useless when we leave it in the toolbox. We don't want the hammer or when people swing and miss the peg altogether. And this is probably the most vital issue. Number six, a deadly peg. A deadly peg. There's only one right response to sin. It's got to be pegged. It's got to be first pegged as sin and then driven through, nailed to the ground, and destroyed. It's the only way you can deal with it. Look over at Judges chapter five, verse 26 now. Judges 5, 26, she reached out her hand for the tent peg, and her right hand for the workman's hammer. She struck Sisera, she smashed his head, and she shattered and pierced his temple. Between her feet he bowed, he fell, he lay. Between her feet he bowed, he fell. And where he bowed, there he fell, dead. 
And I mentioned Wednesday night, that word dead doesn't just mean that, that Sisera died there. It means that he was devastated. The word is shadud. Shadud means devastated, ruined, destroyed, or violently assaulted. We need a, a, a paradigm shift as followers of Jesus when it comes to sin. We need to be a people who are willing to violently assault sin. Please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying violently assault the sinner. And I'm not even saying go after someone else's sin. I'm talking about each one of us personally to violently assault sin in our lives, to have none of it, to say I'm done with it and I'm going to kill it dead. Because sin left alive, even in the slightest will emerge to cause great damage in the future. So many people approach sin as, as that, ah, it's, just, it's like that ugly cousin we don't talk about. <laughs> Do we approach sin as something that must be smashed, must be shattered? Because blankets and milk bottles are only a temporary lull. And again, there are so much, too many conciliatory measures in the church regarding sin. Too much acceptance of it. Well, it's just, you know, no, it's none of my business. That's just the way it is. We'll just kind of let it go. The only thing that, that can be done with sin is to kill it. Again, not the sinner, but sin itself. Now, someone might say, Rick, you talk about sin as if it were a personality. In a way, it is. Because, again, where sin is allowed to lie, to hide out, to rest, to sleep, to escape, it will always come back stronger. Turn over to Romans chapter five for a moment. Romans chapter five. Romans chapter five. I just wanna let Paul do a little preaching for a minute, so we're just gonna take in what he has to say. Romans chapter five, verse 12. And I remind you, Paul is sending this letter to the church in Rome, a culture very similar to the one we're in right now. A culture in which the church, you know, something else I heard, this was two things this morning that, that really affected my thinking and almost knocked me off a point. I was listening to Dr. David Jeremiah while I was having my breakfast. And he made a comment about having grown up in a, in a country where the church was accepted and honored and respected. And now we live in a country where the church is at best suspected. But much of the time, the church is maligned and denigrated and talked against and Christians are fringe people, even though we still have, there's still a vast majority of, of the country who would claim to be Christians. It, the, the maligning of Christianity in in our media and in our entertainment and in our world at large is shocking. This is not the culture I grew up in. It's not the America that I knew when I was a kid. When I went to church and most of my friends did and that was kind of the way it was, not anymore. And he's talking about that and I'm thinking, man, it's discouraging. Well, how do you think they felt in Rome? I would say the same. So this is not new for the church. Romans chapter five, verse 12, he says, therefore, Paul is talking now to the church and he's talking to the individual and to the group as a, as a whole. 
Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, talking about Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And then Paul pauses like he is wont to do, and he says, for until the law, sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed, or in this case, recognized where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who was a type of him who was to come. That is, you can blame Adam all you want, but you're a sinner too. Maybe you didn't do what he did, but you did something else. And you would have figured out how to do the thing that you do different in the garden if it was you. All have sinned, the Bible says, and fallen short of the glory of God. So Paul is making this absolutely clear that for all of us, sin is a killer. Like Sisera in the tent, we're not talking about some harmless thing. We're talking about a killer. Talking about one who shows up in battle array, ready to fight and take you down, that is sin. And to hide it, nurse it, and cover it will result in your death. We can blame Adam all we want, but again, we have all sinned in our own ways. And so what do you do with sin? Sin which kills must be killed. Sin must be shadud. It must be violently assaulted, devastated, destroyed, and pegged for dead. Thankfully, Paul continues. Look down at verse 15 of Romans chapter five. But the free gift, it's not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. Look down at verse 18. So then as though one transgression, or as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. And I point out the word men here is anthropos. It's to all mankind because of one act. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, that is Christ, the many will be made righteous. The law came in so that transgression would increase like a big flashlight, right? Shining down on who we really are, the law revealed sin, showed sin to be what it was, so the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What should we say then, chapter six? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? <laughs> may it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Why do we continue with this mentality? Hey, I'm saved, so it's all good. You still gotta kill sin dead. Verse three, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. That is the Christian life. It is a new life. It is a fresh life. It is walking away from sin and death, not bringing it along. If we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, surely we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. 
knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin for he who has died is freed from sin. Done away with. Note that in verse six. So that sin may be done away with. That is a, a single word in the Greek. It is katargethe. Katargete means destroyed, abolished, devastated, rendered inoperative. Get what that means, what Paul is saying here. He's not saying that once you become a Christian, you become perfect. He's saying that once you become a Christian, once you have died with Christ, sin is no longer operative. No longer operative. That is, it has no more power over you than Sisera pegged to the floor had over Barak or Israel. He could not come out of this and rise again to fight another day. He's done. He's devastated. He is violently assaulted. He is over. And what Paul's saying to us here is that before we became believers, before I became a Christian, I had no choice. I had to sin. Sin was operative in my life. Sin had control in my life. I had to sin. I was gonna sin. That's just the way it was. But in Christ Jesus, there is a new power at work. There is a change. There is a difference. Now you might say, well, wait, wait a minute though. I don't know any sinless Christians. Read on. Verse seven. He who has died is freed from sin. Verse eight. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. Get what Paul is saying. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, so here's the point. Get this, even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. And here's the key, for sin shall not be master over you. You are not under law, but under grace. I said earlier, where Jesus is Lord, none of us need to be. And that means over each other, but it also means over our own lives. I'm not Lord of me, I'm not master of me, Jesus is. He is the one in charge. And the Lordship of Jesus is the only thing that effectively puts down the human desire to be in control. And by the way, that control itself is a lie that I can control my circumstances or control others, right? If I, if I just hold it down, I, I was talking with a parent earlier last week, dealing with some difficult things in, in the family. And the recognition is, and, and most of you, if you have adult children, you know this, you can't control them. You think you can, we, we get lulled during childhood, during raising our kids, when they're elementary age, and I say, go to bed, and they say, no, and I go, I'll, I'll get the belt, and they go to bed, I have control. I have control. So I begin to think I'm gonna be able to control these little lives. Guess what? Not for long. And there comes a point where now they gotta choose. 
They have to decide. They're gonna go their own way. Control is a lie. And it is either sin that controls you as master or it's Jesus who controls you by his grace. And there's no in between. So the only way to deal with the power of sin is the hammer and the peg, the driven peg. Again, back in verse 26 of Judges chapter five, she reached out her hand for the tent peg. I'm gonna end with this, but stay with me just a moment longer. Reading Ezekiel 33 as we began could leave you a bit disconcerted because Ezekiel 33 makes the point that the righteous person, if they commit one sin, they'll die in that sin. The wicked person, if they turn from their wickedness and make the right choice and do the right thing, they can live because of that. And you read that, you might go, okay, um, so if the righteous sins, he's dead. If the wicked does good, he lives. Well, that's hope for salvation, but the standard is so high. I can never be there. I can live a righteous life for 58 years and on day one of year 59, sin one time and I have just blown salvation. I am unsalvageable. I have just completely rendered myself useless for the kingdom. I could be a righteous man or I could be a wicked man. If it's based on what I've done, I'm in trouble. Listen, listen, sin must be pegged. But who am I to do it? And if you're a Christian, you've tried to overcome a certain sin or deal with a certain sin in your life or, or sin just keeps erupting and you're like, I, I, I have no control, I can't handle this. Sin has got to be pegged. I've tried to peg it, Rick, you don't understand. No, I do understand, sin must be pegged. The word peg that is used here, tent peg is yated. It's an important word in the Hebrew, yated, Y-A-T-E-D, yated. And it's translated pin, stake, peg, or nail, or nail. We're gonna finish in Isaiah, so turn to Isaiah chapter 22. Isaiah 22, it's somewhere toward the middle. Isaiah 22, there is a prophecy given that is the answer to all of this and brings it, I believe, all together. And why this story of Yale and the tent peg is in the book of Judges? Check this out. Isaiah chapter 22, verse 22. The Lord is speaking through Isaiah. He says, then I will set the key of the house of David on his shoulder. And when he opens, no one will shut. And when he shuts, no one will open. Now hang on, historically, that is a reference to another guy who's, who's mentioned in verse 20 of Isaiah 22, a guy by the name of Eliakim. Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. There's an historical story that's going on right there, but this is not historical, it's prophetic. Eliakim, by the way, means God raises. I'm going to set the key of the house of David on the shoulders of the one God raises. And he goes on and says, when he opens, no one will shut. When he shuts, no one will open. Well, Jesus grabs that quote for himself. He says, Revelation 3, 7, he who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. He says, that's me. 
That's me. So we know this prophecy is not speaking backward historically of Eliakim. It is speaking forward prophetically of Jesus Christ. Verse 23, God says, I will drive him like a peg in a firm place. A yated, a nail, a stake. I'm gonna drive him like a stake and he will become a throne of glory to his father's house. Jesus was pegged by the Romans as a criminal. Jesus was pegged by the Jewish leaders as a blasphemer. And Jesus was pegged by God the Father to be Messiah, as our Mashiach, as Savior. Isaiah 53, verse five, he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. Acts chapter two, verse 23, Peter said, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to the cross, pegged. Jesus was pegged to the cross. Verse 24, so then they will hang on him all the glory of his father's house, offspring and issue, all the least of vessels from bowls to all the jars, in that day, and God is painting this amazing picture, in that day declares the Lord of hosts, the peg driven in a firm place will give way and it will even break off and fall. Jesus nailed to the cross, died on the cross. It will even break off and fall. And listen to this, and the load hanging on it will be cut off. For the Lord has spoken. What was the load that was hanging on Jesus at Calvary? Sin. It was sin. Your sin, my sin, the propensity to sin, the life of sin in our lives hung on Jesus at Calvary. God said, I will peg him. I will drive him like a peg in a firm place. And then it's all going to fall. And when Jesus fell dead, that load of sin that was hanging on him was once and for all cut off. That's been God's plan from day one, from before the foundation of the earth. That was God's plan to kill sin dead. And that's why Paul can say to you and to me, therefore, consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Guess what? You are dead to sin. Sin has no mastery over you because Jesus took all of that my dad had a West Texas, well, many West Texas euphemisms that I heard growing up, and one of them that he loved to say was, why can't you get that through your thick skull? I don't know if he was referring to Judges 4 or not, but I can tell you this much, we gotta get this through our thick skulls, that the power of the peg, the nails driven into Christ on the cross is the only way to devastate and demolish the power of sin in our lives, in your life, and mine, we have got to put all trust in Jesus. We turn to Jesus. You got a sin that's plaguing you right now, you turn to the cross. You don't say, oh, I'm gonna try and feed the sin or battle the sin or cover the sin or deal with the sin myself. You turn to Jesus and the cross. You cry out to the Christ who was crucified for you, who took that sin and it fell off. You turn to Jesus which is why Paul said in Romans 6, 11, even so consider yourselves dead to sin again, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. 
alive to God. How? In Christ Jesus. You take it to Jesus. You don't deal with it yourself. Alive to God. How? In Christ Jesus. So we're gonna take communion. We're gonna do it now. And the reason we waited is because, and and it's the same reason we take it every Sunday, we take it every Wednesday, and you can take it more. It's not the symbol, it's not a ritual. That won't save you, that won't cleanse you, that won't heal you. But we come to the table to recognize that we are alive to God in Christ Jesus. That the old man, the old woman has no control over you, no mastery over me. He, she is dead, devastated, violently assaulted. There was no more violent assault than what took place on the hill of Calvary. People argue over, well, who did it? You know, was it the Jews? There are some, even today, some Christians who blame Jews for the death of Jesus. Was it the Romans who actually drove the pegs? Jews, Gentiles, yes. But ultimately, the Bible tells us the one that pegged Jesus to the cross was the Father. I will drive him like a peg. Why would God do such a thing? For his great love for you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Father, we come before you now thankful and grateful for the amazing work of the cross. We recognize the cross, Lord, not as a symbol, but as the reality of the birthplace of our salvation and the death place of our sin. We come to take these elements of bread and juice as vivid, graphic, even brutal, Lord, reminders of the one who was pegged to the cross of his flesh that was broken, of his blood that was poured. And Father, I pray that as we come this morning, we would come very seriously recognizing and joyfully receiving your grace in Jesus. Thank you, Father, for this indescribable gift. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.